Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to what will be the last official episode of season five of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast. Fear not, I will be back very soon with season six. But for this episode, I am joined by Dr. Claire Kambamethu, who was my very first guest back in 2019. After I did my first solo episode where I shared my own anxiety story, she was the first expert who helped me to just unpack exactly what anxiety is and what's going on and just distill a lot of the overwhelming information into something really digestible. So Claire is back and this time we are kind of going back to basics really on anxiety so I think it's important every now and then to remind ourselves what's going on as we go off down different tangents of different kinds of anxieties and different ways of managing it. So this time we're looking at a very standard formulation exercise that would occur in a therapist's office when you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy and it's called the five p's and it's to help you better understand your anxiety i find it incredibly helpful it's very simple and it's a very easy approach to to figuring out what's going on and why you're here before you go about making the changes or implementing certain things that will address the anxiety and help you feel better so this is a huge 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 part of the owning it process and uh, Claire explains it so well so I hope you get something from this I certainly did it's always helpful for me to go back and revisit certain things so do enjoy Dr Claire Kamesu she's brilliant she's a regular speaker at various events around Ireland and online and she's also part of uh, Georgie Crawford's the Good Glow Wellness Program that is available now and her topic is all about self-worth which we can never have too much of so go check that out and thank you as always for tuning in for your reviews and for sharing I really appreciate it. Claire Kambamethu I'm so so thrilled to have you back on Owning It the Anxiety podcast you were my very first guest of this podcast back in 2019 and you set me up for what would become this series that has now I hope made an impact on so many different people and I still get feedback from that first episode where you just explained it in such 
a digestible way. So I want to start by just thanking you for for that experience uh, many moons ago now. Oh, I'm delighted to be back and speaking with you again. And it's funny, I actually hadn't realised at the time that I was the first um, podcast guest. And I remember you saying it to me, but didn't take it in. And now I'm just feeling like it's such an honour. So yeah, delighted to be back. Just for a bit of of background, can you just start by reminding us your experience, your role and, and how you work with people? Sure. So um, I'm a clinical psychologist and what that means is that I work with people of all different ages when they're not feeling so great. And sometimes when they are feeling great and they want to keep that up, um, I firmly believe that our mental health is um, just as important as our physical health to take care of on a regular basis. And so we need to be looking at how things are for us and and checking in with ourselves and helping ourselves to feel as good as we can do emotionally. And so that's what I try to do in my work is to help people feel better if they're not feeling great and help them to maintain good mental health when they are feeling good. Absolutely. And you do it so well and you share such um, incredible content, even on your Instagram, just that people can say, oh, this is something I can actually take and work with. And this is actually the last episode of this season. So I wanted to, I guess, go back to basics in some ways um, because we've we've dived into so many different topics over the course of this series. Not that it's the last episode ever, but just I felt like it was time to maybe just take a step back and recover some old ground and maybe just remind ourselves about anxiety in its most simplest sense and something that I was really interested that you you were sharing was a framework to better understand your anxiety using the five p's so I would love if we could just get stuck into that wherever you feel like it makes sense to start sure so I suppose one of the biggest questions that people ask me um, is how do I know if I have anxiety? And I think for a lot of people, that's a really big question. Like the very step in in helping us, helping ourselves work on, on anything is identifying that we have a difficulty in the first place. And so anxiety, um, just to define it, is really an umbrella term that covers lots of different types of problems. Um, so there's lots of different diagnoses that somebody might receive if they go to see a mental health professional or, or their doctor things like generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, phobias of, of particular kinds where somebody might be frightened, really frightened of spiders or really frightened of, of small spaces. Um, but anxiety more generally is just a sensation in our bodies that results from an influx of chemicals, um, things like adrenaline and cortisol. And those um, chemicals have an impact on, on how we feel physically. So we might feel um, restless or keyed up or on edge are quite tense. Um, We might notice changes in our sleeping, uh, where we're sleeping a lot more or maybe sleeping a lot lot less, finding it harder to go to sleep or waking up in the middle of the night and um, and not being able to fall back to sleep and and nothing to do with maybe small children who might prevent us from doing that. Um, We might notice changes in our appetite where perhaps we feel a little bit sickly and don't want to eat as much or maybe where we're eating a lot more than we usually would. Um, we might notice things like feeling dizzy, um, feeling tension in our in our arms and our legs and the, the back of our uh, shoulders. Um, we might notice like butterfly, a kind of butterfly sensation in our tummy. Um, and all of these things are caused by those chemicals, uh, adrenaline and cortisol, um, that result from uh, anxiety. And so 
I think it's just really helpful for people to know what the kind of common symptoms of anxiety might be. And I don't know if you've anything to add in to that, Caroline, about what your your experience has been, how you kind of first noticed it. I mean, well, for me, it was it was really very much all of the physical symptoms that were building up and up. I didn't connect the dots between you know, what was going on physically and how I was feeling emotionally. I didn't have that awareness. I didn't have the language back in when I really was bad for me. So my body, I guess, was communicating me in all these ways. And it felt like I was about to jump out of a plane when I was just sitting on my sofa at home. You know, that feeling of just nervousness of, I felt it even tingling in the palms of my hands. My sleep fell off the face of the earth. And of course, as I know now as well, with with having a baby, sleep deprivation is, is a whole other issue in and of itself. And when you add that onto the mix of whatever you're feeling stressed about, it can just grow arms and legs. And I think for me, like one of the biggest learnings I've had about anxiety over this whole experience has been, you might not always be able to identify a very, you know, something to put your finger on and say, this is why I'm anxious and this is what I need to resolve. Because for me, when it was all about that job that I was in and then I left the job, I thought, well, this should solve it. So here I am now, I've left the job, I've walked away from the situation that started the stress and I'm still feeling incredibly anxious. So I think to, to understand it in that way that it's not just something you necessarily just turn off or turn on like the chemicals they take so much time to almost get to that point where they're so off kilter and then time to come back to being on balance again so yeah there's there's so much in it for me it was so physical I think some people who message me really seem to only experience like very worrying thoughts where they'll just think worst case scenario or they'll think especially people with babies like I get a lot of messages saying I just can't stop thinking something really bad is going to happen to my baby it can be very cognitive and then for some people it's very physical and not they don't necessarily know what they're worrying about they're just feeling uneasy and sometimes that's really unnerving because you're you're looking for something to make sense of it and you can't that's so important isn't it to note that that some people do have very specific triggers or maybe things in their lives that are going on that they know they feel anxious about. But for a lot of us, um, what we know now is that we we can start sometimes worrying about the worry. And that's a lot harder to even put our fingers on um, and to, to realize what we're, we're kind of worrying about. And so, yeah, sometimes there isn't a very clear trigger. It's just a feeling that kind of and a horrible feeling that sits in our bodies um, and stays there for such a long time. That's a, I think that's a really helpful distinction, actually. For me, it's always been really helpful. I don't know if you agree, but it's always been helpful for me to try and find the source of it or try and make sense of it. But for some people, I think in neuroscience, anyway, from different experts I've talked to, there's less of an emphasis on going back and finding out why and just dealing with the here and now and how to, I guess, calm the anxiety. So what would your take be? And then let's go with the first P of the five P's. I think there's value in in both things in my experience. I think for somebody who has a lot of quite intense symptoms of anxiety, the biggest focus for me in working with somebody would be on helping to relieve that so that on a day-to-day basis, they start to feel better. It might not be about, you know, it mightn't get rid of the anxiety in the long term, but actually just to help somebody um, be able to sleep a little bit better or, or to just feel a little bit less panicked by helping them to manage their symptoms. So looking at kind of the triggers if there is one, um, but then also kind of validating their anxiety and their experience if there isn't a clear trigger. 
um, and helping them to do the things that can just reduce the symptoms of anxiety in the body. Things like deep breathing, um, meditation, challenging the thoughts when it's possible to do that or just sitting with the thoughts and allowing the anxiety to be there if it's not possible to challenge them, kind of making friends with it. Um, I think that's really helpful from when somebody is in those those really chronic, intense stages of anxiety. And then for somebody who maybe has managed their symptoms a little bit better, but is wondering why it's still persisting or maybe is finding that um, uh, it's not enough, um, I would be looking at doing that kind of longer term um, uh, therapeutic work around the reasons why they might have developed anxiety in the first place. Um, and for some people that is helpful for other people it's not it's not you know a helpful thing and so I'm always guided by what the person in front of me actually wants to do um, because I think we all know ourselves even if we feel like we don't we know ourselves better than anybody else and we can kind of intuitively know or tap into what we what we need and what is helpful in our own journey sometimes. For me it's just validating whether it's something that is happening right now or something from the past if I can say this makes sense then it takes a little bit of the pressure off me for being hard on myself or feeling anxious in the first place and that already reduces the anxiety even just a little bit. I think sometimes understanding where it's coming from can make you find it a little bit easier to bring some self-compassion on the scene so I would be an advocate to know what's going on but I guess like you say each to their own whatever whatever people find helpful. I think that's a really um, helpful point about self-compassion as well, like because one of the things that anxiety I notice really brings up in myself and, and in everybody else I know who experiences it, which is, by the way, everybody, because all of us go through times when we're more anxious or we're less anxious. And so um, self-compassion, like we can really judge ourselves so harshly for feeling anxious when we don't judge ourselves for like having tripped and broken our leg or you know hurting um our back or doing something physical to our bodies we never you know judge ourselves really harshly for that stuff it's just something that we take for granted we'll get injured don't bring the same kind of compassion or understanding or allowance to our minds to kind of go well you know life is hard and sometimes it sucks and sometimes during my life my mind is going to be injured and that's okay um so i think that's that's so important what you've said there about bringing that self-compassion when we can and yes sometimes understanding it allows us to bring that in a little bit more easily i know that's my experience too caroline um, but yes, going to the first, the first P. So, so if somebody goes to see a psychologist, um, they will do something called formulation with their client. And that is where um, you develop a kind of big picture of what has happened for the person, um, what has resulted in them developing a particular issue, um, what has maybe been the trigger, if it's possible to identify to the issue in the more um, immediate sense, and then what is kind of maintaining the problem? What is it keeping it going and feeding it? And then also what um, is helpful for the person in their life? Like what are the protective things that they're doing? What are the support systems they have in place? So the very first P of that, that model, which is called the five P's model, is something called predisposing factors. And that is things that have happened in our early life or in our, our history growing up as an adolescent, maybe into early adulthood, things that have happened that mean it's more likely that we will develop anxiety in this case. And so 
some of those things in case people are wondering like well what you know what are predisposing factors like what does make me more vulnerable to that these are things like genetic inheritance in the early stages of life if we have a parent who is more anxious in their own temperament we are more likely to inherit an anxious temperament and then not that we will definitely go on to develop anxiety because there are lots of things that can be done to help a child grow up um, so that they don't develop it but we are more vulnerable to developing it if we don't get those things or if other things maybe happen to us um, and then we have our early our very early childhood experiences so um, the the relationship that we have with our caregivers in the first couple of years of life has been shown to have a massive impact on how our mind develops and how our body actually develops um, so in those early uh, relationships, if there is difficulties um, and what are called adverse childhood experiences, um, somebody is more likely to grow up to develop anxiety and also other mental health problems. So it's worth um, people having a kind of look at adverse childhood experiences, which is shortened in a lot of research and a lot of um, books, etc., to ACEs, A-C-E-S to understand kind of more of what they are. But there, there's 10 ACEs that have been identified as being really problematic for children. These are things like physical, sexual or emotional abuse, neglect, parental separation, parental abs uh, alcohol or substance misuse, witnessing domestic violence, those kind of big T traumas, if you like, that some people experience when they're growing up. But there may be other what are called little t traumas. So those things that uh, aren't don't seem really dramatic, um, but also have an impact on how we might develop anxiety that can happen first. So little t traumas are things like maybe our parent wasn't available to help us manage our anxiety. Like kids, by our very nature as children, I mean, we all get a little bit anxious, especially for children who are around the seven, eight years of age mark, because we develop this thing uh, very normally called magical thinking, where we imagine all sorts of scenarios. So that might be where a kid gets a really intense fear of, of there being a monster under the bed. Or for me, I know when I was that age, I used to have these magical thoughts about disappearing. I used to feel this real sense of anxiety that I might just vanish because I had seen this TV program with my dad one day and it really stuck in my mind. And so as kids, we're really vulnerable to developing anxiety and Developing it as a problem at a later point is kind of dependent on how our parents help us to manage it in the early years. That's so interesting because I always go back to childhood experiences and I feel guilty because I'm like, I had a great upbringing. There was none of those big T traumas, but there was probably lots of the little T ones. And I just remember feeling this intense neediness for for my mom and like they worked a lot. They both worked very hard. They, they had to and they did that to provide for us. But I... I always had this sort of feeling of longing for more time with my mum and around the seven, eight year old mark is when my three living grandparents died all in a very short space of time together and parents would say things like, oh, you know, that your granny's gone to heaven, your nana's, you know, it's okay, she's still with you and all those things. I remember feeling so viscerally frightened about the fact that people I knew were dead, just the idea of a dead body and that kind of thing and I remember going in to see my grand I've said this before in the podcast going in to see my granddad in the morgue like I probably shouldn't have with my imagination as fertile as it was probably would have been better off not seeing that and I just remember going to bed each night with such consuming fear that people die that I could die but also 
people would say things like, oh, but your grandparents, they're with you. They're looking down on you. And this fucking terrified me. Like I didn't want to be visited (laughs) by any ghosts. Thank you very much. So I just have such vivid memories around that time when I guess another thing you can tell me if I'm right here, but while we start to develop the ability to like have those fear responses, we haven't yet developed the ability to like rationalize and be logical. Is that right? That is totally true. Yeah. So your parents are telling you like, don't be silly, don't be worried. And you don't have that mechanism yet. So it does feel real to you and it's valid. And I think that's where a lot of people get set up for a bit of anxiety later on in life, because our parents' generation maybe wouldn't have had the awareness. It wouldn't have had the education or the know-how to sort of not diminish a child's worry. Because of course you want them not to worry. So you tell them not to worry, but they are worrying. Yeah, yeah. And for any adult warriors out there, I mean, you'll know this as well. I feel this. If you're worried about something and somebody comes along and says, oh, don't worry about it or it'll all be grand, either um, dismissing it or reassuring us, it doesn't work. Um, And it's the same for when we're small kids. We don't, as, as you've just said, we don't have the ability to rationalize, to think through something until we're a little bit older, maybe 12 or 13. And sure enough, in the short term, our parents um, might have tried to reassure us, but that only works for a very small amount of time. And then the worry creeps back in. Um, And so the key is really uh, helping children to understand that worry is normal, that worry uh, happens for everybody and, and what to do in their own minds when they're starting to feel worried you know, the experience you've described, I think, are really um, about wanting to have more time with your mom while also understanding that your parents were working really hard to uh, create the life um, that they wanted for you. I think a lot of people, when it comes to looking back at those little T traumas, find it very hard to acknowledge those out of a kind of sense of, of loyalty, maybe to their family and a sense of gratitude for the fact that those big T traumas didn't happen for them. But I think it's really important for everybody to acknowledge that, well, my belief is that we don't we don't get to adulthood without some sort of wound. We don't get to become adults without some sort of kid part of us that has been a little bit hurt or a little bit disowned or a little bit small t traumatized because our parents are humans and they may be doing the very best job that they are able to and know how to do. But just by virtue of being humans, we all make mistakes. And so it's very normal for people to have had those experiences and it's not helpful to kind of blame parents for it or to sorry mommy (laughs) it's just something and I don't think you do that it didn't sound like you were doing that at all but I think it's helpful for people to know that it's okay actually to look back on those experiences and go this happened to me I do remember that Um, I do remember kind of feeling a little bit alone or feeling a bit worried about dead people uh, coming to visit me at night time because of what my parents or family had said, meaning the best that they, they meant. And it might especially seem innocuous now as an adult to be like, well, you're hardly traumatized. But as a child, you're dealing with a different brain, different stage of development. So it was a big deal. Anything that happens to you in that age that makes you a little bit frightened, it's a big deal when you are that age. Absolutely. It is a big deal. And they're often the things that we that set us up to develop anxiety at a later point. But we dismiss them because, like you've said, you know, we get to 12, 13 and and we're able to rationalize. And so we start to rationalize that piece and go, oh, well, you know, 
that didn't matter. And of course, you know, ghosts don't won't come and visit me in the nighttime or there's no monster under my bed. But we didn't know that when we were small. Um, so it's really important that people allow themselves to just look back at those experiences they, they've had and, and how they might have felt or the things they might have been scared of and to look at maybe how they were taught to deal with or not to deal with worry to maybe suppress it and to just notice that as maybe a, a predisposing factor in their in the development of their anxiety. So that's number one predisposing factors. Sorry, I should say number one is actually identifying the problem. So in this case, we're talking about anxiety. So that's number one. Number two, then, is predisposing factors. Number three is precipitating factors. So really what that means is the kind of events in the previous maybe few months or few weeks before somebody has developed a problem. So if somebody, if I'm sitting with somebody in a therapy session and it's the first time that I've met them, I'm thinking about, okay, well, what has brought this person to this point where maybe their anxiety is so intense, their problem is so big for them now that they're sitting here. And so that could be anything. It might be um, a relationship breakup and the death of somebody that they love. It might be losing a job. It's just it could be any sort of change or it may be nothing. You know, there may be no clear trigger other than their anxiety continuing to grow and the person becoming more and more worried about the anxiety and kind of feeding it in that way. So it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So precipitating factors is all about what has happened just kind of before this problem has become this. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Big. So for me, then, if we use me as an example, it would have been a significant change that I went through just around the time that I started to feel bad. So I moved out of my house. I changed jobs. I didn't like the job I changed into. So my life changed. You know, it didn't seem like a big deal to most people, but there was a lot of change in a very quick period of time, and it wasn't change that I really enjoyed. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that's a really good description. 
um, and for everybody it will be different and also even for the same person they might have different episodes of high anxiety and there might be different precipitating factors to each of those so the things that have happened to them in their life history are going to stay the same because of course they've already happened but I know for me at times when I felt more anxious there's been maybe different precipitating factors in the run-up to that so that's important to note as well oh yeah so that's changing all the time because you know your anxiety could be rising and falling and like I always refer to my big anxiety experience but my precipitating factors change all the time such as I just had a baby so this is why I'm feeling incredibly anxious you know this is what's led up to this right now yes exactly and the reason why it's helpful to figure those out if we can is we can then figure out if they're they're kind of maintaining the problem which I'll talk about in a minute but we can also figure out if there's things that we need to just acknowledge or validate like in the situation you've described where you've just had a baby you know validating the the difficulty the challenge the hardship in that as well as the joy that it can bring is is really important because if we don't validate that experience if we don't acknowledge maybe what's just happened in our lives we can't really move on or we can't fully understand um, what it is that's going on for us. It does bring that extra layer of, of understanding. And then, yes, yeah, sometimes the precipitating factors, so the things that have just happened in the run-up to this um, time, may also be what's, what are called perpetuating. So the fourth P, they may also be perpetuating factors. And perpetuating factors are things that keep the problem going. So if we're in an intensely stressful situation, I know for me previously, uh, it's been one of the things that's triggered have been a precipitating factor has been grief. And so that grief is something then that's going to keep the problem going because just because I've realized that it's been a trigger for anxiety, it doesn't disappear. You know, having a baby, the baby doesn't disappear. It's still going. It's still ongoing. Um, and so perpetuating factors are, yes, those things that are in our lives that keep the anxiety going. So perhaps a stressful event, but they're also the things that we do in our minds that keep the problem going. So thought patterns or anxiety mind traps that we fall into where it becomes a habit. Yes, exactly. Um, and are often the, the bigger ones and the things that are more important to get a handle on because we can't control those external events. You know, we can't undo something that has or hasn't happened for us. We can't uh, control what's happening in the world. But what we can learn to start bringing awareness to and to start trying to control a little bit more is those habits, those thinking patterns that you've mentioned. I don't know if you've noticed in your experience if there's other uh, perpetuating factors, other things that have kept your anxiety going. I think there's definitely things that people take for granted, such as, you know, if you keep fueling yourself with, with caffeine when you're in an anxious phase, that could maybe add to it and keep it going. Or, you know, just diet in general, like if lots of stimulants when you're already quite stimulated. It's something that I would be mindful of if I go into an anxious period it'll be kind of the low-hanging fruit that I will look at first is okay well I'm going to step away from this I'm going to step away from that because that will just keep me on that treadmill of of anxiety and and also just another perpetuating factor for me I don't know if this would qualify as one um, in your book but just the very act of resisting it and creating more tension by being hard on myself and by just trying so hard not to feel that way and just talking yourself down for the fact that oh here I am again feeling anxious again it's just keeping you on that feedback loop of anxiety so for me it's sometimes stopping and saying okay here I am now and be in it and sit with the discomfort of it for a little while 
Mm-hmm. They are such important points. And um, the first thing that you said about the low hanging fruit, the things that we're actually putting into our bodies or maybe not prioritizing trying to get more sleep, which I do believe is a superpower. And another thing I actually see quite a lot of people experiencing is just an increase in, in alcohol. And God knows I love a glass of wine as much as the next person and sometimes more. <laughs> um, but alcohol can make our anxiety an awful lot worse. Um, it does have an impact on our, our neuro biological system and uh, that's an important point for for anybody just to to consider without seeming too pious or preachy about it could another one maybe be like if you are the type of person that's always saying yes to people or a people pleaser like would that be a precipitating factor that just keeps feeding it in, in maybe a different kind of anxiety where you're you're anxious about what people think of you Yes, exactly. Because sometimes what we do with um, our thoughts is we kind of succumb to them rather than challenging them and going, okay, it doesn't matter what this person thinks of me. I need to say no for my own mental health because I actually can't afford to take on anymore. We go with this kind of idea or this thought or belief that we have to keep other people happy. And in doing so, we reinforce this idea that I have to keep other people happy because we never challenge our experience. We never challenge that thought enough to learn well what happens actually when I don't keep other people happy what happens if other people don't like me as much because I say no to them Uh, so we kind of don't give ourselves the chance to rehabilitate properly we don't give ourselves the chance to learn from new experiences that actually somebody cannot like us and our world doesn't fall apart we don't crumble we don't become a terrible person and I just want to go back to what you were saying there as well about self-compassion and how sometimes that that trap of judging ourselves really harshly um, and then that making the problem worse uh, is another perpetuating factor. I thought that was really important too. Yeah, I think that's a big one that we tend to overlook probably. It seems like of all of the P's so far, perhaps identifying the perpetuating factors might not be so easy because we might be blind to the things that we're doing that are keeping us going. So what kind of questions can someone ask themselves to help identify those factors? Really good question. I think the first thing is to look at um, the low hanging fruit, as you were saying, the kind of things that we are doing. It's easier to spot our behaviours and it's easier for other people to spot our behaviours than it is sometimes to tune into our thoughts. So the first thing is kind of going, what am I doing? Am I doing something on a daily basis, whether it's avoiding situations um, that make me anxious because that feeds the problem that keeps it going? Am I using alcohol or drugs or maybe other things to manage my anxiety like caffeine or uh, nicotine or anything else? You know, is there something that I'm doing? Am I creating situations whereby my anxiety gets worse? Maybe I'm putting myself in situations without actually resourcing myself, giving myself kind of coping mechanisms to manage the anxiety. And then I escape those situations because I can't handle the level of anxiety and just feel worse about myself. I think a really helpful thing if there's a trusted other person in um, somebody's life is to actually ask them to sit down and have a conversation about anxiety with that other person, because the people we're closest to are often less blinkered than we are about the things we're doing. And it might be hard to hear. I think it's <laughs> it can be hard to hear from, from a partner or from a friend or, or somebody that we love that, you know, they can see we're kind of contributing to our problem, but it can also help us if we're open to it to look at things a little bit more honestly. And so spotting those behaviours that are keeping it going, um, using ourselves and other people in our lives is really good. And what about the journaling side of things? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that's just 
journaling for me is probably one of the biggest resources I have in my life, um, whether it's about trying to tune into what's really going on in my head or just release some of that kind of pent up emotion and energy if I don't have another way of doing that. I find it really powerful in both aspects. Um, and I think sometimes it's so messy what happens in, in my mind and, and for other people too. It's very difficult to like disentangle our thoughts. And by writing them down, by actually bringing them into conscious awareness and writing them down, we can just gain a bit more clarity and maybe see how negative our thinking has become or maybe how we are worrying about an awful lot more than we used to. And I think journaling as well, if, if somebody is struggling to know where to start or maybe feeling like, oh, well, I don't want to write down my innermost thoughts in, into something just start by creating an appointment with yourself on a weekly basis, you know, on a Monday or, or a daily basis if it helps you, but definitely weekly and going right at Monday on Mondays at seven o'clock, I'm going to give myself 10 minutes to just set aside and check in with myself and just note, have I been more anxious or more stressed or more overwhelmed this week? Has my mental health changed from how it was last week? Am I suffering more? Am I suffering less? Without doing anything with this information, just noting how you're actually doing is a really helpful start to the process of journaling. Because we have so many thousands and thousands of thoughts a day. And for somebody like you, Caroline, I think you're so aware of, of what you're thinking, having done kind of so much work around your own anxiety. But for lots of people, when they're just learning about anxiety, as I think you were saying earlier, was your experience at the start. You know, we don't know what's what's going on in our heads. It can be just really hard to even write it out. So, yeah, I think that's a helpful start. I actually have um, in my in my journal, only the anxiety journal, I thought it was a lot of pressure on people to track their thoughts every day because sometimes you just you just want a bit of escapism. You don't want to be in the depths of your thoughts every day. But once a week, you're invited to look back at the week that's been and look ahead to the week that's coming and look at your thoughts and feelings and behaviours and, and what, how each one influenced the other in a very non-judgmental, gentle way. You know, it's just once a week if you if you want to do it to just see how things are shaping up for you over a period of time and like you say it's just noting it you don't have to do anything with it maybe you could say I noticed that I tend to have quite anxious thoughts around this particular time of month maybe it's to do with your period because I did an episode on that um, just recently or maybe it's to do with a particular deadline in work or maybe it's when I see a particular person in my family and just to get that observation piece done I think journaling is really helpful for and it kind of helps me in another way because even just by writing something down and it's just for yourself I mean it can be in your bedside locker no one ever has to see it you put yourself in the driving seat of your anxiety and you're already doing something to address it and even that alone as an exercise makes me feel like I'm taking ownership and then that already helps me to feel less like I'm just swirling around in an anxious wave yeah there's a, a form of therapy called self-compassion therapy or self-compassion theory which I know you've, you've spoken a bit about and um, the first step to being more self-compassionate with ourselves is actually just taking a moment to acknowledge what is happening for us and kind of validate our own experience. Just going, I am anxious. I am suffering. This is hard. Just by doing that actually has a biological impact that reduces um, stress. And so, yeah, it's um, on a biological level, really helpful and, and definitely on a psychological. That's been a complete game changer for me. And that was probably the last piece of the puzzle for me to be able to get myself back to feeling well whenever anxiety does rise up is that 
compassion piece and and to understand I've talked about it so many times at this stage but to understand it's not just a nice idea but like you say the biological impact that it has on your body cannot be argued with therefore there's no reason not to do it or to give it a try so we're at the final p then Mm -hmm. the final p one of my favorite well yeah no it's probably my favorite p because it's protective um so this is the good stuff that we have in our lives that helps us um, to overcome difficulties. That means that maybe the extent of our difficulties will be smaller. And so this is the stuff that even if somebody has all of the different adverse childhood experiences that we spoke about earlier in the predisposing factors bit, they can still have lots of protective factors that actually mean that their experience with anxiety might be easier to overcome. So protective factors are things like good, warm, trusting relationships, hobbies and interests, maybe the fact that we do regular exercise or that we are in a particular socioeconomic bubble or that we live in a particular area, that we spend time outdoors. Um, Those things in our lives that actually help us, that we, you know, maybe having good coping skills because we were an anxious kid and we had to get some help with that. Um, So we we already have a few skills built up, Um, a willingness to change and to be open to learning about ourselves and how we can overcome anxiety. So all of those things are a protective factor. So this is kind of what you know that helps you? Mm hmm. I suppose for me, I think of it like, what's my survival guide? What do I know that will help me in the moment as opposed to what will help me long term? And I think people often tend to jump to things like what society tells us is protective or is is helpful. Like with the wellness industry, you know, it's yoga at 5 a.m. and it's getting up early and chanting and it's all this stuff that's very Instagram wellness. And for me, I felt that this just gave more pressure. I mean, if it works for you, great, but it's such an individual experience. You have to tap into whatever it is that you know brings you right back down to zero for you in the moment. So like asking yourself, what can I do for myself right now that will make me feel even a little bit better? And quite honestly, a lot of the time for me, it's putting on some cozy clothes, cup of tea, maybe decaf if I'm feeling anxious, some nice comforting warming food and putting on the biggest load of shite on TV and (laughs) it's just like being able to put your brain on hibernate mode and even though it seems trashy or not very productive if you're giving your body that chance to just calm right down and you're not feeling those anxious thoughts if it's taking you out of those anxious thoughts it can only be a good thing so for me like my protective factors are my comforts my comfort zone going for a nice walk having a great chat with someone just also then something practical would be looking at my diary obviously outside of pandemic times and thinking have I got too much on here do I want to pair something back so that I can have a night in and also coming out of the pandemic something I've said as well is I think there's probably a lot of anxiety around being out and about and doing all these things just because we can and staying in has been a sentencing up until now but when we come out of this and restrictions ease it goes back to being a choice but it's still a very valid choice and it's still very much a part of me being well and I I need early nights I'm a sleepy person so for me like just coming up to bed with a book and and I I always used to feel guilty about like oh I should be doing something else with my evening I just love being in bed it just makes me feel and I'm in it right now recording with you it's just (laughs) my safe haven so your protective factors as long as they're safe and legal and and you know not harmful they don't have to be the prescriptive protective factors that we hear so much about I love what you have just said. Um, I absolutely love it because I think 
that pressure that we put on ourselves to be so productive. I mean, I don't even know where it's come from. If we rewind to um, our kind of cave woman and man uh, style living of a few thousand years ago, we didn't obviously have all of these pressures to be as productive and to show other people how productive we were being. All we needed to do was actually really take care of our bodies. And that involved eating and resting. And resting is just so undervalued. And it is, you know, one of the biggest things that we can do for our mental and our physical health. And I'm not a a medical doctor, but I know that uh, with sleep, there's research to show that the absence of sleep has an impact on every physical and mental health difficulty known to humankind. And so if somebody is struggling with anxiety, often what they need to do is less rather than more and to really give themselves permission to do as you've just described to rest and to allow their body to rest and to heal and to be still and to be calm as opposed to feeling like they have to do more and more and more in order to be well so I just love what you've said there it's so important and I think we're hearing more and more these days about how rest is actually still a productive thing to do and we just find it so hard to do without the guilt like what's the point there's no point in taking rest if you're going to bring guilt up to the bed with you you have to put that to mm-hmm. one side just knowing that it's actually even though you're lying still or you're chilling out or you're watching Real Housewives of Beverly Hills your body is actually hard at work relaxing so it's still yes. doing something I even god I'm, I'm so bad for it myself like as much as I say I love doing that I still I came up to bed a while ago and I was lying down I was like I'm just gonna have because it was the middle of the day and I felt kind of guilty because I'm a mom and I should be just doing things and cooking things and you know any spare minute I got because he was asleep and I was like I'm gonna just take a moment and I was lying down and I was still I was like Caroline you're sitting here doing your pelvic floor exercises lying down the bed like can you not just (laughs) not try and do something productive for one minute so we need to be able to just be sometimes that's hard to do because you know as anxious people you don't really want to just be with your thoughts so a little bit of escapism for me is 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 brilliant there's a time and a place for sitting with your feelings and there's a time and a place for do you know what I'm going to distract myself now you need to have those moments as well you know you don't want to live completely in distraction mode but you don't want to live completely in like deep self-analysis mode either No, no, neither is helpful, neither extreme. And actually, one of the questions that a lot of people ask when we're going through, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, where we're looking at changing our thoughts and challenging our thoughts is, do I have to do this all of the time? Like, how do I know when I need to challenge a thought? And how do I know when it's okay to just leave it and just allow it to be there and maybe get busy doing something else? And the answer is really inside all of us to just challenge it if you can. And if you can't, that's okay. Just sit with that and do what makes you feel good. You know, you don't have to be constantly arguing with your mind. Try it. If it doesn't work, then acceptance and um, doing something else that helps you is is the way forward. And that'll be different for everybody. Yeah. And to go back to the journaling, it doesn't have to be something you're doing 24-7 thinking X. You know, you're not on double time in your mind. You can just say, oh, these thoughts are coming and going. They're not They're not super pleasant. But I'm going to sit down later on in the day and I'm going to have my 10 minutes of, of thinking, like, where have I been at this week? And that can be as, as much as you want to do. And the rest of the time, you can just be allowing yourself to feel however you're feeling and, and guiding yourself towards things that those more protective things that help fill your tank back up. So th- is this all part of, would this be within the cognitive behavioral therapy umbrella? Yes. So that five piece formulation is one of the um, most 
popular, I suppose, and most well used uh, cognitive behavioral therapy formulation. So for every different type of, of therapy that's used, uh, so an example of another therapy might be psychodynamic or psychoanalytic psychotherapy, um, maybe acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, self-compassion. Each type of therapy has a slightly different formulation. Um, so this is the one that most of the psychologists I know, and including myself, would use really all the time. And then I might develop another formulation, depending on if I'm going to use a, a different uh, form of therapy with somebody, if, if they agree to it and, and want to do that. But it's something that someone can do themselves as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's something um, that I think is really helpful. And just it's like a framework, like a hanger for our understanding of how we've come to a certain point. And then when you've when you've gotten a clear picture of your five P's, if we liken it to, I suppose, the way I approached my book, owning it, I had like the assess and the address technique. And so the assess was understanding what's going on, where it's come from, what is anxiety, why are you in this particular position? And then the address was, okay, I, I understand that now. So what am I going to do about it? So perhaps the five P's are similar to figuring out why you're here. And then once you've done that, then you can look at whether it's making lifestyle changes or adjustments, whether it's if you feel the need to go back and talk through and, and unpack some childhood experiences or traumatic events, or whether it's look from where you are now and go forward. The world of opportunity of things that you can do to help, it's overwhelmingly big as well. But I think the five P's or the figuring out why you're here is the most crucial work. And I feel, I believe, you can't just slap a yoga class onto the end of an incredibly anxious, overwrought day and week and expect it to make a blind bit of difference if you don't understand or address what's going on in the first place. So for me, this is half the anxiety dealt with if you can get this far. Definitely. Um, just bringing that little bit of understanding. And I think when we don't have that understanding around why something's going on, it can make our anxiety more of a challenge. Like that idea of just going to a yoga class and everything being better um, can often mean that somebody ends up feeling more anxious because it hasn't worked and they've hung all their hopes on going to yoga and that being the thing that solves their problem. Like for some people, maybe doing yoga morning, noon and night is the thing that helps them. But I think hanging our expectations on any one thing, any one thing that kind of the, the wellness industry is telling us that we should hang it on isn't a helpful thing and can actually just make us feel worse when that doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. And like if it's a, if it's an issue at work, for example, if it's someone with a very challenging boss and they're logging off every evening upset, there's only so many protective factors that you can layer on there without actually looking at the root and seeing is this something you can actually change because it's still going to be there. So I often find that for some of those very tangible anxieties, you really have to look at how you can change those things. And, and if you can't, then how can you protect yourself or change yourself, your own reaction within that situation? It's, it's a huge topic, but I really think it's it's a wonderful place to start with the five Ps um, and also something that is worth doing with someone like such as yourself. So if someone wanted to explore this with a therapist, would they seek out a clinical psychologist who specializes in CBT and say, look, I want to do this? Or would it be something that happens just the minute you walk in the door of a therapy office? I suppose people practice in, in different ways. It's something that I would be working through with somebody in the first maybe two or three sessions that we meet. Um, it's hard sometimes to get all of the five P's out and, and clear within just one one appointment. Um, so I think it's helpful to um, you know, find a good psychologist or therapist to work with and then um, to, to talk to them about it in the first session to say that it'd be good to get a better understanding of 
um, their formulation um, because people share it in different ways as well. Um, I suppose I would share it quite clearly with people that I work with now, um, whereas some other people might have it and might be thinking about it and being aware of it in their own minds, but maybe might share that uh, so frequently with clients. So it's something you can always talk to and ask your, your therapist or psychologist about. And as I said, it would differ for different forms of therapy. So if you're going to see um, maybe a psychologist who practices psychodynamic therapy, their formulation might look a little bit different to this. But um, like with any form of therapy, you know, the most important aspect we know is the quality of the relationship between the person and the therapist. And so all of this stuff is up for discussion and for, for talking about. Okay, wonderful. Dr. Claire Campbell-Messu, I can't thank you enough. It's been really wonderful for me to revisit this formulation, even for myself, just to kind of go back and remember the, the framework within which we're operating. And um, it just makes things a little bit more manageable and things make more sense. Um, and I think it's always helpful to revisit the, the basics and just remind ourselves how anxiety works, what we're dealing with, uh, how normal it is, how easy it can rise up for people, and that there is tools and techniques and there is ways out of it as well so thank you so much for your incredible expertise and just the way that you distill the information in such a digestible way it's really powerful oh well thank you and um yeah it's been an absolute pleasure and brings me in touch i suppose with my own anxiety as well and and just how big a problem it is for us all at the moment in society and i hope that um whoever's out there and is maybe suffering a little bit can take something from this that's helpful so yeah delighted to have been talking to you caroline oh thank you so much Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The easiest way to access owning it real time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.